Hello and welcome to Status. My name is Omar Dahi and uh, today I'm interviewing Max Isle, who is a visiting researcher at Wageningen University and the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment. Max, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, basically, we're going to be mainly talking about your most recent article, Does the Arab Region Have an Agrarian Question, which you just published in the journal of peasant studies. Uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. So I really enjoyed uh, reading the article and I think it's um, uh, very broad in its scope and ambitious and incredibly informative. Uh, I learned a lot from it and I thought I'd just uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the main points about the article but also some broad questions about what made you write the article, what are some of the questions and response to and what are some of the blind spots that it tries to address. Um, but before we get into that, why don't you tell me a little bit how you got interested in uh, studying agrarian issues in the Middle East, North Africa region? So I've been working on agrarian issues since 2006, 2007, and had been working on them primarily in the Latin American region and to some extent in Palestine. And at a certain juncture, it became necessary to focus attention, at least for the time being, on one of these two regions. So I ended up focusing much more on uh, the Arab region and ended up, for a variety of reasons, actually very much related to, uh, the, to the content of the article itself in Tunisia, to work on my Arabic, and then I ended up looking into modern agrarian processes and decolonization and intellectual history there. Great. So uh, tell us a little bit about your research uh, in, in Tunisia. What, what is some of your, uh, the themes that you research before we get into the article? Um, what is some of the research in Tunisia? So my research on Tunisia initially was supposed to be about how the state intervenes in the price system in order to carry out certain forms of agricultural planning, in order to hit production targets, in order to ensure the social reproduction of smaller medium farmers and supply food to uh, urban poor layers. That, my ambition had originally been to, to do research about that, to, be, uh, to do an investigation into modern provisioning and modern agrarian questions in Tunisia. Uh, for Tunisia, as is very much the case for other countries as well, I discovered that there were serious gaps in the kind of uh, the, the prehistory of that process. It was not actually possible to write the type of modern political economy or modern historical sociology of Tunisia absent uh, engagement and a deeper investigation of the process of decolonization itself. Uh, and this is in part because Tunisia does not actually have uh, a modern archival historiography uh, because of the constraints on knowledge production in post-colonial post -colonial Tunisia. Archives were, were closed for the post-1956, the post-national liberation period. And as a result, uh, compounded by kind of uh, political constraints on knowledge production in neo-colonial Tunisia, 
there, I realized that there was actually no uh, synthetic work that was really bridging both the process of national liberation itself and the early post-colonial period in order to be the foundation for research on the, the later post-colonial period. So I ended up examining the process of decolonization in Tunisia and immediate post-colonial planning from the perspective of what's called the agrarian question of nation or examining uh, how the Tunisian people ended up partially reacquiring control over this fundamental uh, material resource for national development, which is the land. Um, and in Tunisia, in fact, there was a very unbeknownst to uh, many scholars is that there was a major peasant war, which was actually what liberated Tunisia from the French, and it occurred in several stages, uh, the first of which is probably better known than the second, uh, and the second was actually linked up to Nasserism uh, through uh, Ben Youssef, and it was also linked up with the Algerian Revolution. Uh, more loosely, it was getting, there were arms uh, coming from China, so it was very much bound to this kind of internationalized process of uh, freeing the land from uh, the colonizers. And, and that had actually only very partially been written about, and it's only been written about in Arabic, and above all in the last three to five years is when the bulk of the work had, has come out about it. And so that has been seriously under-examined and hasn't been really organically linked to the process of post-colonial development and the exclusion of the peasantry. So that was my my dissertation topic, and uh, which I'm developing for, for further work. While I was doing that, because I happened to be there for a relatively long period of time as fieldwork goes, I was there on and off from 2014 to 2019, uh, I started delving into some research on heterodox agronomy in Tunisia, which is kind of an, an evolving project and is my next major project, and examining kind of this um, alternative strain of development planning that really didn't really ever congeal into state policies, but was um, really groundbreaking in the way that people were looking into ecological forms of agronomic production and thinking about that as a fundamental component of an entirely reconfigured and people-centered economic plan for the state. Great. So let's get into the article itself. And uh, in a way, as you mentioned, uh, there's a blind spot in agrarian studies um, that that really motivated you to write this article uh, and and um, essentially part of what your major framing of the article is that there's an absence or a big gap when it comes to the Middle East North Africa region within agrarian studies so tell us a little bit before we get into the region itself maybe you can sketch to us this absence a little bit or give us an overview of the field of agrarian studies what are some of the main questions um, that it deals with, what does it mean uh, to study the agrarian question or what are the type of different agrarian questions that have emerged, uh, let's say, in historically and today uh, in the field, uh, particularly since uh, the 1960s and 70s? So there's two major currents in, in agrarian studies. There's one which is very much looking at agrarian studies in uh, by departing from classic or paradigmatic uh, research questions that are go under the name of the agrarian question. And this uh, emerges from 
uh, both classic historiography and also um, and, and classic political theory, and especially Marxist political theory, and also uh, stretches into the period of the decolonization period in the 50s and 60s. So you had uh, agrarian questions that were, were originally posed by Engels about what was the role of peasants in Europe in processes of political change and how could peasants be enlisted or not by uh, urban-based political parties. And then there were, you know, agrarian questions of industrialization related to where would one get a surplus for industrialization? And above all, this was posed in uh, the Soviet Union after the after the Bolshevik Revolution took off and was answered in a very different way in, in China and was a paramount question for all of the post-colonial states. Where does one get a surplus for industrialization? So these were uh, classic ways of organizing thinking about uh, the, the overall processes of agrarian change and the role of the countryside in processes of national and international political, social, and economic change. More recently, the field of agrarian studies has taken a much sharper turn towards political ecology or merged in many ways with political ecology. So that concerns about uh, political and ecological degradation or agroecological production in uh, given land bases has has really started to dominate the field of agrarian studies, along with studies of specific peasant movements in uh, distinct geographical arenas. So the, the landless workers movement in Brazil or the um, uh, or, or rural rural movements in Mozambique or uh, and, and kindred movements all over in, in Africa and especially in South Asia and also above all in Latin America, which is really the traditional heartland of, in many ways of modern agrarian studies and also is the traditional heartland of the peasant internationalism under in the form of La Via Campesina. Excellent. So basically, despite this uh, wide scope and really rich, uh, you know, tradition and history of different uh, questions on uh, peasant political economy, the region itself is pretty absent, at least in the modern uh, uh, journals in the field. So you have, um, you wrote in uh, your survey of intellectual production that from 2001 to 2019, the Journal of Peasant Studies printed six articles on the region out of around 800, and none of them on Egypt. Uh, tell us a little bit about perhaps this absence, um, and and what is it that that you really wanted to investigate about it? So, in part, in fact, we we had this conversation once where we were discussing the if the, if there was kind of a modern uh, rural sociology or modern uh, rural anthropology of Syria, and you know we we arrived at the conclusion that there was not a great deal of work, especially for example on the 2000 to to 2011 period. Uh, more recently, of course, including by you, there there's a, a growing corpus of work. So the situation is starting to change. But I, it, it, I realized that when I both when I was doing my own research and doing background research, it, there was a very sharp absence of the Arab region from the Journal of, of Peasant Studies. And 
when you have such a stark absence, you want to, it's natural to want to figure out why exactly that's the case. I mean, it's easy to, it's quite easy to, to document the absence and note that it's there, but there's a reason for it. And of course, there's a, a tendency to exceptionalize the region in so many ways, as, as we know. I mean, there's entire concepts devoted essentially to exceptionalizing the region, like, you know, the rentier state or, uh, the, the predominance of religion as the independent variable to explain social change in the region, et cetera, et cetera, or the, the predominance of, of terrorism and the, the trapping the region and this kind of morass of, of conflict or terrorism studies and so forth, that all of which uh, ha- has been a way of sweeping away these questions of materialist uh, class analysis or political economy uh, that are very much the lenses we use to understand other regions of the world. So, I, you know, I wanted to understand uh, from a sociology of knowledge approach why that was the case, because, of course, it's obviously not the case that uh, the region is not amenable to materialist analysis. We would we would totally reject that as a, a classic orientalist maneuver. So, in fact, we should look at not only carry out a sociology of knowledge, but ca- understand what are the materialist reasons why we don't have materialist analysis of the region, or if we do, we have it in uh, a, a much smaller quantity than we have for other regions of the world. Great. So with that said, uh, give us a little bit of an overview on shifts in agrarian political economy in the region. Um, uh, you can start perhaps in the 1950s to 70s up, up until today. You do this in quite uh, interesting detail in the article, but if you can just give us a, an overview of these shifts over time. Yeah, so I think people, others might periodize it differently, but it, it seems to me that in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, you, for a variety of reasons related to the predominance of developmentalism, uh, which in, in many of the states took uh, the form of the state structures being invested in improving the well-being of the populations um, and in other cases at least being very much invested in uh, in either containing the populations or in increasing the amount of material production, the, the states took an active role in the planning of the economies in ways that had to be attentive to what was actually going on in the countryside. So there was a lot of uh, relatively speaking, of course, there was a lot of state support uh, and state encouragement and state space allotted to uh, understanding what was going on in the countryside. And so you can really see a profusion of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm better versed in, in the Maghreb, but uh, you, you also have it in the East, uh, you, a profusion of literature uh, that really mapped out in close detail what was going on with the peasantry and the smallholders and the large landholders uh, across the region. And even when this tendency started to, uh, the, the state interest in development started to wane in, in part under the U.S. attack and the U.S. imposed neoliberalism and uh, increasing warfare in, in the 80s, there was still a state ideological commitment at various levels to developmentalism, which in turn opened up ideological space for certain forms of investigation. Um, And that in turn made its way into 
uh, U.S. academia, uh, you know, through uh, through a glass darkly. So there was always obstacles because of the intense politicization of the region. But if you look at uh, doctoral dissertations, if you look at magazines like Merip um, and the books that were being published at that time, um, uh, including, you know, on Syria itself, some of the major monographs, you know, you have two major monographs by Hinnabush on, on Syrian peasantry during that period. You have uh, Batatu um, on um, Iraq and his later work on Syria was very much based on uh, what was going on in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you just had a, a real uh, efflorescence of, of research for these various reasons that were related to what was going on above all in the region itself. Um, and uh, interest in political economy, both with the region and also in the U.S., there was an ideological opening for uh, materialist work in the region that started to shut down, um, not just in the region, but more broadly, starting in around uh, 1990. Um, that's great. And uh, I mean, th this this basically touches on you know the the heart of of uh, your article which is the this absence um, and one of the things you really bring into the analysis uh, in a central way which uh, uh, you argue and I would agree is is missing from a broader uh, research agenda on the agrarian question is the question of war and imperialism uh, that you you bring and uh, try to make it a central way of understanding both shifts and developments in the region as well as the lack and uh, basically gaps in knowledge production. So talk to us a little bit more about the question of war and imperialism and, and how does it uh, play out in terms of its influence on the agrarian question in the region? Yeah, so in, in, in most other... Uh, world regions, it, it, there of course is war, and it's very often war that is uh, promoted or incited or, or carried out by imperialism, but then you have a resumption of uh, non-war time in certain senses. So there's uh, wars that are both wars of national liberation or wars of peasant rebellion, and then you have kind of interims of uh, what you would call normalcy. I mean, in the in the region, the war has more or less been uh, constant and regionally integrated, and also uh, waxing. You know, from the from the 1980s, there have been uh, major wars just ripping across the region, in which, of course, the U.S. has played a major role. And you just have massive dislocations in agrarian production during during wartime. I mean, you have armies that are going across, uh, that are that are moving across uh, agricultural installations. You have a state breakdown of ability to manage uh, their agricultural economies, to offer credit, to offer, uh, to distribute implements, to offer inputs for the more modernized farming, to coordinate agricultural purchases, to carry out agronomic research. Um, and you also have, of course, massive uh, deaths that occur as a result of, of the wars. And that actually reduces the, the human wealth of all of these countries. And so what you have in the region are sustained periods of actual what uh, people from like Sarah Roy to Ali Qadri uh, are calling de-development. You actually have losses in the overall productive forces on a, on a mounted basis. I mean, and the best analogy we have for understanding that, 
as a historical phenomenon or as a current phenomenon in Palestine is colonialism, right? Colonialism classically has meant, especially settler colonialism, is the actual collapse of the indigenous productive forces under some form of assault that ends up with, that uh, redounds to uh, accumulation in whichever state is either supporting or the, the colonial assault or is actually, uh, the, it is, um, directly benefiting, for example, in the case of Israel. So this has to be brought into the study of the region. Otherwise, it's um, we, miss, we, we miss basically the agrarian question in the region. I mean, the agrarian question is, above all, a national question, which is inflected through, through warfare and which allows us to see why it is that the agrarian question looks so different. I mean, we also have cases, for example, that... Um, we have certain situations in the region that are not even legible as agrarian questions in part because of these kind of many distorting uh, lenses and funhouse mirrors through which the, 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 the social and political situation is distorted or reflected or refracted. So for example, to take one example, um, you know, it isn't even posed as an agrarian question who the Houthis are or why they're fighting or why they're poor and what they're fighting for. Um, and, you know, this is posed as a question of, of sect or as a, a fundamentalism or Iranian proxies, uh, rather than understanding that Yemen is a predominantly agricultural poor country where what the ebbs and flows of agricultural development have really uh, determined uh, a large measure of what people's lives look like for a long period of time. And, the, for various region, reasons, the, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were interested in a divided Yemen. And when, when a divided Yemen was no longer possible, they were interested in a weak Yemen and, uh, and under dictatorial control. And when that was no longer feasible to have a weak Yemen under dictatorial control, then there were, became, they decided to launch a war on Yemen. Um, and the people who are, are resisting that war are, of course, predominantly people who must have been, at least in large measure, either directly involved in agricultural production or were more or less freshly deracinated and were in, in the slums of the cities and then um, ended up joining the Houthi movement. And so it, it's that that question is not even posed in the political sociology of work on the region, even though it would uh, it, it's very important to help us understand um, you know, the social origins of, you know, for example, who some of these people are. And furthermore, on, on the other side of the coin, uh, it would help us understand better what they're fighting for, which is actually sovereignty, which is actually the right to use the land base as they wish. Um, and so when we remove uh, the this question of war and imperialism and their relationship to nation and uh, land from the equation, we end up with these very stunted understandings of uh, of the current conjuncture in the region. So my essay is really about, you know, there it's it's not definitive answers by any means about a lot of the questions I pose, but it's more suggesting what I think are important research agendas for people to uh, look into in their studies on the region. 
That's absolutely right. And that's what I think is uh, really fascinating about your essay is that it really does uh, uh, weave a really interesting narrative, but also uh, has so many uh, different possibilities for further research. Um, I mean, you brought up the question of Palestine uh, as you were uh, answering my last question and and, uh, raising the issue of what are some struggles taking place that are not thought of as agrarian struggles. You mentioned two further uh, unknown uh, uh, struggles. One of them is perhaps uh, uh, more known, which is the first intifada, but it's not thought of in, in agrarian peasant terms. Uh, and the other is the, the far revolution. So tell us a little bit about how you uh, reframe those two moments in time to, to, to illuminate broader aspects of the agrarian question. Yeah. So the, the, the far revolution, which, um, is is now slightly better known, I think, than it used to be. This was a, this was a, a revolution of of rural people who were fighting for sovereignty over their their territory, and above all, they were fighting for sovereignty in a specific, not just a specific uh, type of territory, but they were also fighting for sovereignty in a specific territory that's in very close proximity to Saudi Arabia. So in this sense, the denial of their right to determine the structure of their own lives and uh, their right to carry out, uh, of course, a popular development strategy. And of course, they were very much influenced by it. They, they were Marxists. Um, the, the denial of that right meant that it was the basis for Saudi Arabia being a core, uh, a core component of U.S. imperialism and the, the petrodollar being a core component of U.S. of U.S. accumulation and so forth. So these were two. What, what I wanted to make clear in, in lifting up Dofar is that these are two sides of the same coin, right? These are two sides of the same historical process. The lack of uh, sovereignty or the lack of national popular sovereignty and the, the need to suppress the Dofar. Uh, peasant war is part and parcel of Saudi Arabia being a uh, core adjunct of the U.S. and being able to export um, reaction, not, of course, across the region and also across the globe. So we, it's bringing those two aspects into one unified frame and saying, OK, actually, if we want to understand this process of capital accumulation on a world scale, which Saudi Arabia is an integral cog in, we actually need to understand that that rests on an originary process of warfare, which was suppression of what was, in, a, in essence, a national peasant revolution. Um, and I, the, the, other, uh, the other major uh, historical experience that I looked into is uh, Palestine, where, of course, in, you know, in, um, in, in the Palestinian uh, rhetoric and conceptual um, conceptual lenses Palestinians and, and people in the region often used to understand the Palestinian struggle. Of course, the land is very much central, right? And liberation, return, right of return is to the land. But somehow that uh, has slipped from a lot of the discussion about Palestine in the United States. And so it's not thought about that actually the Palestinian struggle is a war, uh, is a struggle uh, for national liberation to regain control of the land. Um, and, um, there, you know, there's actually a scholar, Riyad Musa, who wrote a fantastic and uh, somewhat tellingly not published doctoral dissertation, which actually treats settler capitalism 
treats the mandate as a process of settler capitalism into, in Palestine and shows that at, at the time of the Nakba, the most of the people who uh, w- most of the Palestinians still were very were smallholders. They had lost most of their land, but they the overwhelming majority of them still owned a little piece of land. And that, so there was a process, a great process of what we could also call primitive accumulation um, to violently remove that land from their control and place it under the control of the Zionists. Um, and the Intifada was in uh, very much both uh, land was both means and end. Uh, land was both the means of fighting uh, for uh, control over Palestinian lives. And this was through land committees. These were through cooperatives. This was through appropriate technology production. This was through rural industry. Uh, this was actually, in, in some measure, through agroecology. Uh, they were using all of these means to reorganize production, to be less reliant on the Zionists for uh, agrarian production and for their own production, to improve their own capacities to produce, and in fact, to have that be the physical basis for uh, reasserting uh, and defending their claims to uh, to sovereignty over their land more broadly. So in in fact, you have multiple elements of the agrarian, of, of agrarian struggle that are kind of conjoining. I mean, you also have this in other cases, like in Guinea-Bissau. Um, and of course, in China, you had, you know, uh, independent production going on in liberated areas as part and parcel of the broader process of uh, national liberation. So it's not unique to Palestine. But what is unique is that agrarian studies is not treating Palestine. And at the same time, uh, Palestine is not thought of very often these days as just uh, as very much a question of national control over the land when that's in fact what's at the very core of it um, and in this sense it should uh, have a very smooth interface with discussions going on and and also political solidarities implied in uh, the field of agrarian studies yet that isn't really going on very much. Uh, great. Um, so my next or um, last set of questions have to do with more contemporary questions about agroecology and food sovereignty, which um, I guess similar to the broader absence uh, in the field, there's also less uh, work about the region. And one of the things that you try to do towards the end of your article is try to locate where some of the uh, work about agroecology and food sovereignty is being done and some of the research and 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 uh, sort of group it together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that turn in agrarian studies and also where you located in the region? Yeah, so of course the the region is tied into the rest of the world. There's no question about that. So there have been uh, there, there are processes of knowledge interchange, and uh, Palestine, above all, has been involved in Via Campesina and a member of Via Campesina, uh, the International Peasant Coalition, for a long time. And Via Campesina is a huge defender of agroecology or kind of sus- permanently ecologically sustainable forms of, of peasant production based on smallholder knowledge not based on the knowledge that comes from uh, agro-industrial farming in the West. So you you have these circuits of intellectual production and you have people who are uh, 
um, it, you know, and, and there there is some continuity. So you had some of this occurring, of course, in the 80s, where also, as you had in Latin America, you had certain forms of uh, a return to the peasant um, and return to smallholder production. And that kind of gestated into uh, broader agroecology and food sovereignty movements in the 90s and the 2000, 2010s because of the wars, of course, it didn't hasn't been able to develop the same way or with the same rapidity in in uh, in the region and uh, and of course Palestine. Although now in Palestine, precisely because there are not very many other palpable exits, you do have a lot going on right now in terms of permaculture, in terms of people building up, uh, doing agroecological mapping of Palestine. Makediat um, is one institution doing it. Uh, you have a lot more people. In fact, you know, Palestine may be one of the places where you have the most people going back to questions of of land and environmental justice and agroecology. Um, you know, it's probably possible for me to name 10 to 20 scholars doing that right now, um, maybe more. And uh, so you you have Makaniet. You also have uh, a network uh, which emerged in um, in the in the early two early 2010s, uh, bringing together people from uh, uh, scholars of of Lebanon and Yemen and Jordan and Egypt and Tunisia uh, and Morocco, Himar. Uh, um, which was directly intended to address this gap in agrarian production. And those are people um, um, uh, who I'm in touch with and who very much helped me orient my thinking about this. So some of them, um, like Rami Zureik, is doing some work on agroecological production in Lebanon. Um, Martha Mundy has done some of that work in Yemen, um, along with, of course, uh, with the lead of, of her collaborators in, in Yemen, who, um, are also doing some work with, um, it, it's supported by IDRC, but they're kind of doing work on, uh, indigenous, uh, foodways and, uh, indi- um, kind of mapping out strategies for food sovereignty in Yemen. There's a lot of that work going on in Tunisia, with which I'm more directly involved with Habibayab and the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment, where there are, is research into local agrarian production. There's documentaries being made about um, existing forms of traditional peasant production, especially in Gabis, but also elsewhere, because you have always peasants doing uh, this form of production, uh, whether or not they call it agroecology or not, you have, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, most smallholders are somehow still doing some level of, uh, of agroecological or traditional forms of production, just because this is, that's just the name that's applied to, uh, very much to traditional non-capital, non-capitalist, uh, non-industrialized forms of agriculture. So it's it's happening everywhere. Just where is it being documented? Where is it being systematized? Where is it being promoted? Um, is a slightly different question. So I think um, it's kind of been slow to arrive, but you're really seeing uh, the beginnings of an efflorescence. I mean, I think as far as I know, the main centers right now would be uh, Yemen, uh, Tunisia, and Palestine. Uh, the work in Yemen is, of course, the least known. Um, I think there's almost nothing written about it in, in English, but there are turns towards it because it's really uh, like it was during the first Intifada in Palestine. It's really a matter of survival to be able to 
uh, improve their national agricultural and agroecological forms of production. So I think uh, I think it's there if you if one looks for it, and um, you know I hope more and more people are aware of it and are able to, in some form or another, uh, support it. So my last question, uh, Max, uh, has to do with a figure that looms large in in the in your article and also whose work weaves together a lot of the different threads from the classical agrarian questions right up to agroecology and food sovereignty. And that's the figure of Samir Amin, who's uh, uh, you've also written about elsewhere and uh, whose legacy and work and engagement is found uh, uh, in, in and shows up in various places. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, uh, his work uh, with respect uh, to the agrarian question and the legacy that it had. I mean, you cite many uh, Tunisian dissertations which took up uh, the work of Samir Amin. Uh, and of course, he himself continued writing right up, up, I believe, up until, you know, the time of his death uh, very recently on, on these issues. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this legacy, perhaps briefly even. Yeah, so Samir Amin, uh, in the most general sense, really offered what he called uh, an extension of Marx's model of accumulation to the global South and really brought in systematically how the global South and therefore above all the countrysides of the global South were very central to the pro historical process of accumulation on a world scale, which he also pointed out was polarizing and uneven. So it polarized the world into uh, these places he called identified as cores and as peripheries, and that the cores concentrated uh, accumulation, where they concentrated value, um, they concentrated wealth, and they still do, and the peripheries did not. And there was a kind of transfer of value um, from the periphery to the core. And because, of course, this is a his long-term historical process, above all, uh, historically, this has occurred through agriculture. Um, it, because it's 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 really very recent in historical terms that you have um, industry also being a component of this transfer of value through uh, industrial offshoring and uh, outsourcing and so forth. So what, what Samir Amin really pointed out the centrality of that, the, how the countrysides had been um, kind of excluded and immiserated, not because they were backwards in this kind of traditional model of dualism, but because they were actively uh, underdeveloped through the process of accumulation on a world scale. So they might have been uh, underdeveloped because of colonial commodity extraction, which was the case in huge portions of non-settler Africa and in uh, India uh, and in broader South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, and you had in settler Africa, the dynamics were different. Of course, it was also commodity extraction, but it was also uh, land alienation. So people were rendered landless. Um, you also, of course, had the, had the slave trade, which meant that the actual people produced on certain pieces of land were a uh, central part of the accumulation process through the, the triangle um, in the Atlantic. So you had these inter, interlinking processes in which the land was always central. And so on the one hand, uh, Amin showed very clearly that restricting understandings of the agrarian question to certain kind of localized processes, which um, kind of hit their peak um, uh, orthodoxy, you can say, in certain forms of, uh, you know, Western Marxism, like um, uh, 
uh, Robert Brenner, Ellen Mason Smith, where they just say we're not really interested in uh, what what was going on in terms of this accumulation, in terms of understanding uh, transitions to capitalism. They just say it's not relevant to their model, even if it was relevant historically. So Samir Amin was kind of the figure writing against that kind of uh, methodological nationalism, Eurocentrism, in terms of processes of world historical change and, and uneven accumulation. Um, the, the flip side of that is that Samir Amin was really the, the pioneer, or at least the most prominent figure, if not the kind of a lodestar, of thinking through what it meant to rupture from the process of underdevelopment. And for this, his model was very much China. Um, from 1950 to 1980. Um, and so China really concentrated all of these agrarian questions and concentrated answers to them too. So what it said, who, what is the role of peasants in the process of uh, political change? They need to be placed front and center in these peripheral countries where peasants are 70 to 90% of the population, right? And that was the answer in China given, okay, that you needed to put the peasants front and center. Where was uh, the, the capital coming for industrialization? Um, in China? Okay, well, again, you have to take it from the countryside, but how do you do it? Do you do it through um, kind of ruinous extraction from the peasant, or do you do it by uh, taking some from the peasant on the understanding that you're also going to put it, uh, return it back to the peasant, and you also need to say to the peasants that they need to carry their load if you want a developed, industrialized country? Um, and so that was an answer given to this kind of agrarian question of industrialization, saying if you want to carry out sovereign industrialization, then while also attending to the well-being of the peasantry through things like improving and stabilizing their the amount of production they produce um, in, their, in their fields and also while giving them medical care and so forth, then you really need to pay attention to these diverse questions. So. On the basis of this, um, on the one hand, Amin became a very central figure because of his analysis of accumulation on a world scale became absolutely foundational to all um, the the Maghrebi countries in terms of their own writings, of their uh, writing, their their own materialist uh, history of their countrysides and also their industrial processes. Um, he was somewhat less prominent in, in Egypt and also elsewhere in the Arabies, but, uh, you know, he had an influence, especially later on. And of course, dependency theory was, was very, uh, dominant as a lens through which to understand uh, the process of Egyptian development, uh, Adel Hussein and, um, Mohammed Dawidar and, um, other figures as well, although they did lean less on Amin during this early period. But the other aspect of it is the way his model of, um, auto-centered development that he extracted from China really became the, a dominant way for people in the region to think of development for a long period of time. And so it really became, it's not only that China as a model, or at least as, um, as a place that offered important lessons was very central, but it also offered a, a path of four previously colonized people to think about what it would mean to develop uh, without thinking you could falsely thinking you could do it through integration with the world capitalist system. I mean, this is the lesson they also learned from the lights and shadows of the developmental experiences of, of the 50s and 60s and early 70s in the region is that you needed to delink. And Amin really laid out a theoretical model that had a really broad currency within the region. And that also, I think, uh, laid out a broader kind of set of parameters within which a lot of national level work could be done, both in terms of macroeconomic planning or at least future planning, 
um, and also within which even uh, smaller forms of agroecological research could be done. Um, and you had lots of figures like, um, who were really looking locally about what could be done in terms of agricultural production specifically. And so one figure who I'm uh, carrying forward my research on here is Lahdin al-Ramami, um, Abdul Samara and Elin Kuteb were very active in this work in, in the 80s and 90s in Palestine. Uh, Paul Pascon was doing work about this in Morocco. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure there were kindred figures in Syria. You may know them, but um, I'm not sure who they are. And uh, But uh, you have these figures really everywhere. And I think an important uh, line of intellectual history will be recuperating these figures and thinking about what their work offered, not merely as an object of kind of purely intellectual or uh, interest, but also what it uh, what it can offer to development planning in terms of walking towards a better future. Well, thank you so much, uh, Max, uh, for sharing this uh, very generous sort of uh, uh, discussion of your article, which is really fascinating. And uh, I urge everyone to read it if uh, they have a chance and to use it. Uh, I think it makes for an excellent uh, teaching um uh, tool in in classes uh, on political economy of the Middle East, but also on uh, you know contemporary issues in the region and broader uh, questions, of course, on on agrarian studies as well. Um, is there one last thing that you want to leave us with before we uh, before we say goodbye? No, I think that's very that's a great place to leave it. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com Or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com dot com.